It's even been like inshitified, as our guest today calls it. And yet, we're coming to you through the internet. So, you know,、um, where do you stand with that? You know, you don't want to be a hypocrite just complaining about the internet on the internet. Do you, boys, George, Phil? Yeah, I'm happy to be a hypocrite about the internet. I hate the internet, but obviously, it's fairly important. So, yeah. I hate the internet and I love the internet. So. That's, that's, that's I think they, I think they call that dialectics.、Point. Anyway, welcome to yes, BungaCast. Yes, exactly. The dialectics of the internet. <laughs> welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end, of, the end of history. This voice that you're hearing right now is Alex Ohili, which is my name. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And George and Phil、uh, are in the UK. So,、um, the internet, this is what we're talking about. You're about to hear an interview,、uh, which I did with Corey Doctorow,、uh, the great.、Uh, Tech critic, I suppose,、um, and blogger and author. And he will be introduced when you hear the interview if you're not familiar with him. But I wanted to start off just by asking you know, how important we think the internet is. There's been lots of waves of enthusiasm about the internet. And then there's been this tech clash, you know, this backlash against tech over the past, well, five, ten years even. How, where do we now stand on the internet?、Um, is it you know, something that we see as key for connectivity, for self organization, even for democracy?、Um, that's certainly what a lot of activists felt 15 years ago. Or should we just treat it as a sort of basic utility like water, gas, electricity, and indeed maybe something that should be nationalized? Podcasting it... shouldn't be nationalized, but it should be seen as a basic utility. <laughs> well, we can plug into the national, you know, to the national. You can, you can run your own shower. Right.、Um, from the, I want to keep our autonomy as podcasters. I don't want to be like、right. a national. You, you can do whatever you want in the shower.、Anyway. You can do what you like in the shower.、Um, or is it merely just a surveillance tool and we should actually try to destroy the internet, break the internet?、Um, yeah, but we should tell our listeners that we're not surveilling them. So we're not.、Either. So, yeah, I, I think the common sense today is basically that we know the internet is bad for us, but we, we, can't, we can't live without it. I think increasingly. The, the ways that we have of experiencing things, the, just the, the sheer, I guess, just convenience、um, and ease that it's offered.、Um, you know, it, it, it mediates all of our interactions, entertainment, leisure, work.、Um, yeah, so I think it's, it, is, it is ubiquitous, but maybe some of that kind of tech utopianism or that, the, thrill of, the thrill of technology, I don't think that's really present anymore. I think instead people are, are slightly more prone to worrying about the mental health effects of being always online, about the surveillance, about the ways it's trying to change our behavior. This is to, to group a whole range of things into the bundle of the internet. Yeah, But、definitely. yeah, I would say yeah. that's the, the general, I think there's a, more pessimism than there was.、Um, Five years ago and ten years ago, fifteen years ago. So that's that would be my my not very hot take at all on the internet. Yeah, no, I, that's absolutely right. And I think you know the only kind of enthusiastic visions of the internet, or more broadly tech, tend to be pretty scary ones 
pretty dystopian ones, which um, are explicitly anti-democratic, I think. Um, that's not the subject of our discussion today. So I want to get into that too much, one for another time. Okay, so you're about to hear my interview with Cory Doctorow. And after that, you will be... And that will be followed by the after party, where the three of us uh, will discuss some of Corey's ideas, his proposals for an anti-monopolistic approach to reforming the internet, uh, a little bit about the techification of the economy as a whole, um, and perhaps some other little bits and bobs about free speech, about content moderation. Uh, after parties are normally available only to patrons at patreon.com slash bungacast, but this one uh, is free. If you like what you hear, do sign up at patreon.com slash bungacast, and make sure you rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here's me talking to Corey. All right, I'm here uh, with Corey Doctorow. Hello, Corey, how are you doing and how, where are you calling us from? Uh, I'm very well. I'm in my garage and at home, my home office in Burbank, California, a little town on the outskirts of Los Angeles. Okay, very good. Um, so not not like in Silicon Valley, quite quite uh, a ways removed from it. No, much closer to Hollywood. I, I uh, will probably go down to the picket lines later today, as I do whenever I'm in town and spend a while uh, carrying a sign. Excellent. Very good. Um, actually, some of the stuff about the entertainment industry creeps into your book. So we're here to talk primarily about your book, uh, The Internet Con. Um, but firstly, I guess I'm going to start with a really dumb question, um, which sometimes are the more difficult ones to answer. But um, I think most people probably have felt that their experience of using the internet has worsened over the past couple of years. And like, you know, whether it's like sites being full of pop-ups and cookie requests and auto-playing videos or social media just being incredibly maddening, frustrating, addictive, and so on. What is the internet? <laughs> what is the internet and why does it suck? Well, I mean, uh, uh, look, I'm not going to give you a technical answer for what the internet is that's uh, probably a long and boring conversation. I'm going to give you a policy answer which is to say why we should care what the internet is, which is that it is the single wire that comes into your house that depending on how it's configured can deliver free speech, a free press, freedom of assembly, access to romance, family life, personal life, civics, politics, nutrition, healthcare, education, employment, uh, and everything else that we use to measure the quality of life in, a, in an advanced society. Uh, and, and that's why it, it is worthy of such consideration and because the internet touches all these areas, it's extraordinarily difficult to uh, regulate right. That, you know, the, the spillover effects from mistakes touch so many areas of our lives that policymakers have kind of ricocheted between two modes. So one is to be so timid about regulating lest they, lest they uh, disturb so many other facets, facets of our life that they do something really terrible. Um, that uh, they've done nothing, or they have gone become just absolute nihilists and said, uh, you know, stop telling me about how important the internet is. That's just tech exceptionalism. Shut up. Uh, we're going to just make this rule and you're going to suck it up. It, it'll be fine. And um, really, uh, I think that the, the, the pluripotentiality of the internet militates for a, a nuanced technical and policy understanding, and that it's really only where you understand what levers of policy are available and what technology can do, that you can start to take this foundational technology, not, not the most important, but foundational in the sense that like, if we're going to 
do something about the climate emergency or about racial justice or inequality or gender justice or what have you, then we're going to organize that movement on the internet. And so, you know, this, this importance, uh, it really can't be overstated. And so we really, really need to uh, have a good both technical and policy understanding. Now, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that because I think a lot of the buzz and excitement that existed around the internet and its capacity to change things has obviously um, deflated quite significantly. Can you deflate buzz? Anyway, um, you get my point. Yeah. Um, and, maybe, and maybe we can come on to, to why that is and how it's perceived towards the end. But I want to get into the kind of main argument of the book. The book's about big tech rentierism, I guess, at the higher level. But kind of in more practical terms, it's about interoperability. I'm going to try to say that slowly. Interoperability, like it sounds like a pretty technical, nerdy kind of thing. But your argument is that it's quite important. It's kind of like your your one simple trick to make the internet work. But I, I was quite convinced by it. So what is uh, interoperability and why does it matter? Well, interoperability is one of those things that's that's so ubiquitous and yet so subtle that you can either describe it in just a few words or you can argue about it for the rest of your life. But foundationally, interoperability is the idea that like two things can work with each other, right? You can you can put anyone's butter on your toast. You can wear anyone's socks with your shoes. Um, you can uh, uh, put anyone's petrol in your car. And with computers, there's a level of interoperability that is really fabulous um, because we really only know how to make one kind of computer it's the what, what's technically called the Turing complete universal von Neumann machine, which means that it can run every program that we can write. So every valid program can run on every computer. Uh, and, and so that opens up all kinds of opportunities and challenges. So some of those challenges are things like um, we don't know how to make a printer that just prints. Like we don't know how to make a printer that doesn't that that isn't capable of running malicious software. And so your printer mm. can get a virus, right? It'd be great if we could make a printer that was just a printer, but we can't, right? Once, once it's a general purpose computer, it can run all the programs. The, the other big challenge here is that the flexibility of digital, the fact that we can kind of reach in and twiddle the knobs and change the parameters so easily makes it possible for the firms whose technology we rely on to play a kind of high-speed shell game that at times can feel like magic, where they just change the compensation schedules or change the, the algorithm for content recommendation so that workers and users just can't figure out if they're getting a good deal or how to get a better one. It's as if you know we were tormented by a wicked god who altered the rules of physics. So sometimes when you dropped a rock, it fell at nine meters per second squared, and sometimes it fell a little slower. And you know that, that was all just based on <clears throat> what some bored person in a back room was doing, or or even worse, what some automated process was doing to tweak the parameters. So an example of this would be um, Uber drivers who divide themselves internally into uh, pickers and ants. And, and pickers are drivers who only drive the rides that come with the highest price tag attached. They're picky. And ants take every ride like an ant picking up every crumb of food. Mm. And the Uber, Uber algorithm wants the um, pickers to become ants because ants are how Uber is viable. If you have a bunch of drivers driving around when they're not getting paid, just circling the block, looking for a fare, uh, paying for petrol or electricity, uh, not getting paid for any other job, it means that riders have a really good experience because as soon as you uh, summon a car, there's one available for you. And so to convert uh, pickers into ants, Uber's algorithm, its payment algorithm, takes notice 
of which drivers are picky and offers them a much higher rate to take the same job than they would give to an ant. And these, these um, pickers, they don't know that this is going on. They're just like, oh, I am, I am good at Uber. I'm getting better rates than everybody else. That must mean that I'm better at using the app than everyone else. And so they slowly but surely abandon the other things that they do to, to make ends meet and move themselves from picker status to ant status. And as soon as they become ants, the algorithm withdraws that pay premium and restores to them the, the base rate that, that is given to other ants. But as they go, <clears throat> if they start to notice that their pay is dropping and they start to take fewer rides, the algorithm notices that too and gives them a higher pay rate. Now, if, you're, if your boss wanted to do this to trick you into coming in for more late shifts and whatever, they would have to work really long hours fiddling with the pay schedule and the accounting system and, and so on. But the algorithm can do it at the speed of light. And so you have what is really quite a stupid trick being done so fast that you can't spot the the, the trick being done. And so those are the those are the downsides of interoperability. It's this flexibility that lets um, all kinds of bad things happen, but that flexibility also lets all kinds of good things happen. You know, because we only know how to design the computer that can run every program we know how to write. That means that there's no technical barrier to writing third-party antivirus for your printer so that catches the antivirus software that your um, uh, vendor is too uh, slow to want to patch. Moreover, there's no technical barrier to jailbreaking that printer so that it runs anyone's ink, nor is there any technical barrier to writing a counter algorithm that selectively rejects jobs, trying to play head-to-head uh, like two high-speed trading algorithms in a in a stock market, trying to trying to keep the bid as high as possible. What there are are legal barriers, and so what we yeah. have done, and this is quite ironic, is rather than make legal barriers to fraud and labor abuse, we've made legal barriers to self-help measures, so that our uh, the firms that we bargain with and that we deal with and whose platforms we depend on can change the rules from minute to minute and second to second without having to worry about privacy or labor or or fair trading laws but as soon as we start to reverse engineer their programs and make self-help programs that give us back some of those rights they can sue us or even seek criminal uh sanctions against us for a variety of causes that we lump together under the phrase uh, ip yeah, no, that's very good. I, what struck me reading the book is the way that obviously there's a whole range of dirty tricks that you catalog and discuss throughout uh, throughout the book. And, you know, to a certain extent, you think, well, but, you know, a capitalist economy is full of these dirty tricks. Is tech exceptional in this regard? And I think I'm curious what your opinion is on that. But also it seems to be the case that tech is able to lock people in, whether it's consumers, users, um, producers on <coughs> platforms, in a way that um, other um, other industries aren't um, at a technical level, but also, as you've just said, at a legal level. Um, so maybe, I don't know if you could talk us through maybe the, an example of this. I mean, you mentioned printers. So there's like the printer cartridges with chips that only um, are, you can only use with a certain type of printer. But I don't know, maybe you have another example which, um, which you'd, you'd care to illustrate. Well, I mean, we could look at Facebook. Right. Um, Facebook has this intrinsic form of, of lock in in the form of what economists call the collective action problem. So, uh, you know, you join Facebook because you like the people who are there and then other people join Facebook because they liked you. Right. This is called a, the network effect and it describes products and services that increase in value 
when more people use them. And tech pro products typically enjoy a high degree of network effects. And under normal circumstances, those network effects would be countered by switching costs. The fact that you can always engineer a way to make it easy to leave a platform and go somewhere else. So when Facebook started, their pitch to MySpace users was, hey, quit MySpace, come to Facebook, but you can still talk to the people who you left behind on MySpace because we're going to make an interoperability layer. We're going to give you a bot. You give it your login and password. It'll go to MySpace, <clears throat> take all the messages that are waiting for you there, put them in your Facebook inbox, let you reply to them, and then autopilot them back out to MySpace as replies on MySpace. So you can leave MySpace without losing, leaving your friends. So in, in general, tech has actually very low lock-in because mm -hmm. you can always engineer a solution to these high switching costs to make it easy to go one place to another. You can take your files with you when you switch from Windows to a Mac because Apple has a product called iWork that can read and write Word and Excel and, and PowerPoint. But uh, because of legal barriers to lowering those switching costs, to making those kinds of bots, to doing that kind of scraping, to doing the reverse engineering that would be necessary to make them work, uh, no one can do that to Facebook. And so when you want to leave Facebook, you have to say goodbye to all your friends because you can't get together with them and agree on whether it's time to go and if it is where to go next, because you can't even agree on where to go for dinner next week, right? Like once you get past, you know, a couple of dozen people, agreements become really hard to forge, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the inverse of this is what Facebook has going for it. So Facebook uh, is uh, mostly in the ad tech business, and this is an extraordinarily concentrated business uh, run by effectively two companies, Meta, which is Facebook's parent company, and Alphabet, which is Google's Facebook com uh, parent company. And these two companies, when someone wants to make a policy that's adverse to their interests, like a privacy policy, or someone wants to enforce a policy that's adverse to their interests, like GDPR enforcement, or someone wants to break them up and force them to deal fairly with publishers because the ad tech sector takes 51 cents out of every publisher's advertising dollar because they're so concentrated that they can rig the markets. Um, they have the they have no uh, um, uh, coordination problems. There's just two of them, right? And moreover, you know, like their C-suites are filled with people who used to work for the other one, right? You know, at, at, at the point where a sector becomes like five or four or three or two companies, they become so incestuous that they might as well have Habsburg jaws, right? Like they're all veterans of each other and they're all like godparents to each other's children and like maids of honor at each other's weddings or best men and like they're executors mm. of each other's wills and they play in the same softball team and like they just know each other right they see each other all the time they're neighbors uh, they they you know rent the same ski lodge every christmas and so collusion becomes really easy when there's a small number of firms and really hard when those firms attack a large number of workers or users and those collective action problems can often be overcome with technology but one of the things that lacking a collective action problem allows these firms to do is ban the technology that would let workers or users band together to resist their uh, abuses. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, when people use the internet, I mean, I guess it depends what age you are to a certain extent, but there's a vision of it as being this kind of 
extra thing that's you know on a layered on top of life and if you want to unplug from it you can always do that and kind of doesn't really matter and obviously you're um you know you have paint in the book and you've already said here that this is something which is um pretty foundational um and we can yeah. maybe come on to how that that is the case but you know reading the book i went from that level of like yeah these things are really annoying they annoy me i spend a lot of time online whatever um and i know that there's it's very bad for uber drivers for example and the way they get locked in um but I got to a stage where I was, you know, get that kind of spine tingling sense of the total power of these monopolies and how they're able to lock people in, and particularly because of the role that the state plays, the, the law plays, um, that actually enforces these these laws. So I wondered if we could maybe talk through an example. Um, I was quite interested in this felony contempt of business model. It's a phrase that recurs, and it's quite a, kind of even hard to unpick, and I'm sure if listener just heard that they're like wait say that again friendly yeah. contempt of business model um so there's well, i mean maybe this is one story you could tell the the story of bruce lehman who was hired away yeah. by uh, from microsoft by bill clinton sure so you know you probably if you're if you're at all paying attention to like debates about tech and policy you probably encounter people who get quite angry about the term ip uh, and they say intellectual property is a meaningless phrase it was invented to invoke the state religion of America, which is property rights, whenever we talked about corporate policy, that we used to call these things like what they are. We would call trademark, trademark, and copyright, copyright, and patent, patent. We wouldn't pretend that they were in some way the same thing. Um, and, and they're not wrong about that on a kind of formal level, but I think that there has been an emergent and increasingly prevalent, very crisp meaning of IP in the corporate context. And IP in the corporate context means any policy that I can invoke that allows me to reach beyond the four corners of my office building and exert control over my competitors, my critics, and my customers. And the beginning of this really comes with Bruce Lehman and the Clinton administration, and more importantly, Al Gore and the National Information Infrastructure Hearings, the, the, the so-called uh, um, information superhighway hearings. So the internet had been effectively a military project until the Clinton administration, and they wanted to privatize it, for better or for worse, right? There was not really any scope for public administration of a significant part of the internet. There's like some pretty significant downsides to that. On the other hand, like if, if you're worried that the internet is a source of American hegemony all over the world, like the American government saying that they wouldn't own it uh, is probably um, uh, something that you should be happy about. Mm. So he holds these hearings to say like, what should we do? And Bruce Lehman had been the head of copyright for Microsoft and he was a lawyer and he was hired away by the Clinton administration to be the IP czar for the Clinton administration. So he shows up at these hearings that, that Al Gore is the vice president was holding and he says, I got a plan. It's called the, the layman white paper. I got a plan. We're going to require copyright licenses for every copy of a work made in the course of delivering, consuming, saving documents on the internet. And so like the network buffer, the frame buffer, the hard drive buffer, the, the cache, all of these things are going to require like separate negotiated licenses. So this is like, we convert everyone who's ever thought about going to law school into an IP specialist, and we give them all full employment until the end of time, and we still wouldn't have enough lawyers for it. Mm -hmm. and, and to his credit, Al Gore was like, get the fuck out of here. That's stupid. And Lehman 
instead of you know being discouraged, he had that stick to itiveness and gumption that we associate with the Microsoft machine. He went off to Geneva. He went to the uh, the World Intellectual Property Organization, uh, UN specialized agency that deals with these issues. It's kind of has the same relationship to stupid copyright laws around the world that Mordor has to evil in Middle Earth. It, it, it all starts there. And, and he convinced them to enact two treaties, the WIPO Copyright Treaty, WCT, and the WIPO Performers and Phonograms Treaty, the WPPT, both passed in 1996, collectively called the Internet Treaties. And the Internet Treaties enshrine most of that farcical wish list that Al Gore rejected and turn them into treaty obligations that America has to embrace. And then he goes back across the Atlantic to D.C., and by 1998, America has passed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. And the DMCA, it's a big, weird, gnarly hairball of law. But one important clause in the DMCA is Section 1201. This is the anti-circumvention section. Um, and so it's important to note here that Section 1201 actually does more than the WIPO treaties demand. So it, it, what you mm -hmm. see is a kind of ratchet tightening. So he gets, he gets more out of WIPO than he wanted from Gore, and then he gets more out of Congress than WIPO required. A at each stage, you get um, the requirement plus plus. And Section 12.1 of the DMCA says that if you have a system that has an access control that restricts access to a copyrighted work, that bypassing that access control for any reason even if no copyright infringement takes place, is a crime. And trafficking in the tool that lets you effect that bypass is a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine. Now, at the time, there were very few systems that were covered by this. Uh, the big two were games consoles and uh, DVD players that had region coding so that you could sell a disc for more in America than you did in India, or you could release a disc in America before you released it into Europe and know that Europeans couldn't just order the DVDs from America. Now, right. none of those things are copyright infringements. If you like take a trip to France and buy a DVD and bring it home to you know New York, you're not violating copyright. You know This is actually what copyright's supposed to do, right? Like the rights holder sold you a work, now it belongs to you and you should be able to watch it. Um, and so this is why it was really important that DMC 1201 prohibit conduct that didn't violate copyright, because in order to mod your DVD player to play out of region DVDs, you had to bypass an access control and distributing the tool to bypass that access control was a felony. Now, DVD CCA, who actually designed this bizarre system, um, they forgot to raise a war chest from their members for uh, litigation. And so there were a lot of deregionalizations of DVD players. But as computers got cheaper and as industries got more concentrated, it was easier to put these digital locks into systems. And they had more money to sue competitors who defeated the digital locks. And so today we see digital locks in everything from insulin pumps to cars to subcomponents of your iPhone. So like the screen has its own digital lock to ventilators, to inkjet printers, um, to your thermostat in your house. So we now have these digital locks in our bodies and we put our bodies inside systems that are controlled by these digital locks and bypassing these digital, digital locks to change how the system works is a felony that can land you in prison. And what this means is that companies 
that add a very cheap digital lock, right? You can do it with a system on a chip that costs 26 cents or, or used to before the supply chain problems and probably will again mm -hmm. once chips right. get really cheap again. That they can basically say that any change you make to their product is a felony just by putting a digital lock between you and that change. This was an absolutely foreseeable outcome of DMC 1201 in 1998. It was a thing that um, Congress was warned about and discounted in that age in the same way that until pretty recently, um, whenever we talked about tech policy, often with leftists, leftists said um, that is not a, a serious undertaking, that um, we, we should really be thinking about class and race and gender and not like the disposition of arguments about which kind of Star Trek was best. Be serious. Let's not talk about tech as a serious right. domain for tech poli for for policy discussions or or radical politics. Um, it, it was very clear that this was going to be really important to a certain kind of technological person. They were often dismissed as um, uh, tech essentialists or or as um, uh, tech exceptionalists. And really, maybe some of them were, but really the foundation of this criticism was the understanding that all of those other fights were going to be fought with tech. And that if we lost digital technology as an organizing tool and force multiplier, that we would be outmaneuvered at every turn. Yeah, no, that's very good. I, I think probably even people listening to this might have thought along similar lines you're going okay well that thing about dvd players you know that's well for, for people who remember that um you know that's really infuriating um it's really angering and it's really bad for consumers but why does it matter so much but i think that story right there of um of lemon going to geneva and getting the the world intellectual property organization to kind of impose this thing on the united states is such a brilliant snapshot of the way that power works today, kind of from from a kind of micro level up to the top, you know, passing from kind of big tech's monopoly interests through uh, national law up to, uh, you know, tr transnational organizations and the role that they play in um, imposing this intellectual property regime around the world. And as you've just said, it's not just about whatever region locked DVDs or whatever the yeah, or, or, or stopping you from uh, pirating Sega Dreamcast games, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And to pick another very contemporary example. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah, there's a whole bunch of these, but actually it goes much deeper and wider. And maybe to I, I want one example, which um, surprised me, actually, because I wasn't familiar with this area of this e economic sector either, um, is uh, the question of <laughs> tractors. Yeah, let's go for mm -hmm. tractors, because um, you talk about that in the book. Um, so this is a, a good example of, of rent-seeking, of monopolistic practices, um, which goes, you know, as I've just said, I guess you find examples up and down the market, um, up from the kind of biggest, highest level of the economy down to quite small, tiny things even, which you wouldn't even think about. Um, and so one example that you dwell on is, is VIN locks or VIN locks um, mm -hmm. and the way that they prevent maintenance being carried on, on machines. And John Deere, the massive tractor manufacturer, um, avails itself of, of these locks quite a bit. And it's quite striking. So anyway, so something let, let's talk about, you know, sure. agriculture, which it seems really far away from tech. Yeah, yeah. So you know, VIN, if you've ever encountered those initials VIN, it's probably in the automotive context, it, it stands for vehicle identification number. And it started as a uh, literally a number that would be stamped onto the chassis of cars at manufacture time. Uh, in order to um, uh, create a kind of indelible record of which car is which. And, and if you've ever seen a thriller about, um, you know, 
people stealing cars and like running a chop shop. They're like sanding off the VIN number. But the VIN is now also embedded in the controller of the car, right? So it's in the, the, the master computing unit of the car. And um, because of that, and because your car is basically a computer network you put your body into and then, you know, drive it 100 kilometers an hour down the motorway and hope you don't get killed, um, every part in the engine that is computerized can talk to the, the, the car's um, central computer and ask it what its unique serial number is. And so remember I mentioned these 27 cent systems on a chip that you can put a digital lock in. You can take sub-assemblies of the engine and you can say, um, before this part will engage with the engine, even if it's installed correctly, make it ask the computer whether it was authorized to be used with that car by the, the manufacturer's own dealer. And if not, if you went to an independent mechanic, or even worse, if it's a third-party part manufactured by, by uh, a competitor, the engine can refuse to use the part and the part can refuse to talk to the engine. And so this is used to control the aftermarket for parts. It's used to control the market for used cars, and it's used to control the market for repair. Uh, one of the things that I think is underappreciated when we talk about controlling the market for repair is it's also, if, if you can decide um, who can fix a, a gadget, you can decide when that gadget is beyond repair and you can say, throw the gadget away and get a new one. And in particular, you know, this is a trick that Apple has mastered. You can say, well, you can only get your gadget fixed at our official depot. And when our official depot says that your gadget is beyond repair, they will offer you a trade-in so that your next gadget is not from our competitor. And that trade-in will require you to surrender your gadget so it can't become a used gadget or source of parts for other broken gadgets. And then we can have a, um, a disposal system for these things. Apple calls it a recycling system, but really what they do is they shred any of the gadgets that are uh, surrendered to them as part of a trade-in program so that none of those components can ever be recycled into broken phones to keep them working. And instead they all become e-waste. And so this is spread across all the different sectors, including John Deere. Now, one of the things that's going on in parallel and, and is actually closely related to this distortion of tech policy is a, 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 a trend towards monopolization in every industrial sector. And John Deere is no exception. And there's a, a really simple explanation for this. We just stopped enforcing anti-monopoly laws, um, starting a little bit in the Carter administration, but then in earnest under Reagan. Uh, all around the world, we embrace this crackpot theory of antitrust that says that monopolies are actually really good because they're super efficient and that if a company gets a monopoly, it must mean they're very good at their jobs and we should just, you know, not not uh, stir them up and try and break them because they're the goose that laid the golden egg. And so in every sector, whether we're talking about eyeglasses or professional wrestling or intermodal shipping or finance, we're down to these collections of, you know, two to five companies who find it very easy to decide what policies they want and to get them. And so you get these bad policies like anti-circumvention, like the MC-1201. So these are very related ideas. And in tractors, we're down to like two tractor companies. And, and the second one is an also ran. John Deere is like the 800 pound gorilla of tractors. Mm. They really are now totally integrated into our supply chain. And you may have remember there was a kind of heartwarming story after the uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia, where uh, Russian looters stole a bunch of John Deere tractors from a Ukrainian John Deere dealership. And then they turned up in Russia. And the John Deere dealership was able to brick 
those tractors remotely. So uh, permanently freeze them so that they would never work again. Uh, and everyone was like, go Ukraine, look at your cyber nous and how good you are. And like this kind of amazing asymmetrical warfare, you know, smarts against brute force, love to see it. But no, what no one really interrogated here was like, how is it that a John Deere dealership in Kiev or wherever it was can like know where all the tractors they sold are <laughs> right. and, and kill switch them, remotely deactivate them? And it comes to John Deere's decision to monopolize parts, repair, and use tractors by putting VIN locks in every component of the engine of a John Deere tractor, which allows them to do things like say, well, um, you know, a rototiller or some other attachment that would go on the head end of the of the tractor, right? The thing that that um, turns it from one kind of agricultural implement to another. You have to buy it from us and not from one of our competitors like Honeybee, because the the digital handshake can detect that you are not using an official John Deere uh, head end component you're using one of our competitors and we just reject that. It also allows them to decide who can fix your tractor. And John Deere actually has the best of both worlds here. So the farmer usually does the repair, right? They've got the part, they slot the part and they, 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 the part comes up, but the tractor still won't work. And so they pay a couple hundred dollars for a dealer or, or their representative to show up at the farm and type an unlock code into the keyboard, right? So this is like, they don't even have to do the work. They can just collect the rent. Now, this is disgusting enough, but what makes it really terrible is the specific circumstances of agriculture. There's a reason that farmers have always fixed their own agricultural implements. I, I once went to a, um, uh, uh, an open-air museum in the United Kingdom. It's called Beamish. Uh, it's the largest open-air museum in, in Europe, uh, and it has a farmhouse with a Roman foundation. And that Roman foundation includes a forge and workshop. And there's a reason that even in antiquity, our farms had their own workshops. It's because farms are by definition the end of long, lonely roads. And farms sometimes need to get stuff fixed in a hurry. Like if there's a hailstorm coming and you need to bring the crop in, like you can't wait three days for a technician to show up. You need to have a workshop right there on site. And so what we have done is we've put the ability uh, to uh, plant and harvest agricultural product at the mercy of this tawdry rent-seeking enterprise that also creates these security risks. Because one of the things about John Deere tractors is that all of this stuff that is designed to lock a farmer out of a tractor is itself not very secure. Um, in fact, it was one year ago yesterday that I watched uh, a guy called Sick Codes, who's a, a, a hacker, demonstrate at the DEF CON conference in Las Vegas, which I came back from this year's yesterday, um, demonstrate how he could take over a tractor remotely. Um, and if you can take over a tractor remotely, if you're just a white hat hacker demonstrating things at a technical conference, you can also do it if you're a state actor or a ransomware creep wanting to shut down the entire food supply of a country or a region. So this is very bad. And what's worse is that the kind of research that Sick Codes was doing creates liability under Section 12.1 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Because explaining the vulnerabilities in a John Deere tractor can be construed as trafficking in material that would help bypass a, a digital law. Wow. Now, Sick Codes yeah. did his presentation with uh, lawyers standing by in case John Deere showed up 
and forced him off stage. And in fact, there was someone else who was meant to present this year who was going to present a, a similar attack on cars that Microsoft effectively silenced. Now, this doesn't stop criminals from figuring out this stuff independently, nor does it stop state actors who, who want to um, uh, disrupt other nation states' uh, food supply or vehicle fleets from discovering it. What it does do is it stops us, the suckers in the cars and the farmers in the field, from knowing that the products that we depend on are not fit for purpose and expose us to ghastly risks. Um, a yeah. few years ago at, at um, DEF CON, there was a security researcher who demonstrated that they could take over the um, steering brakes and other controls of every GMC Jeep on the road uh, remotely over the internet. Um, and they had been delayed in presenting their findings because they were worried about this, this liability under, under Section 1201 of the DMCA. And that liability has only gotten worse. We've, we've seen um, new exotic legal theories under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, contract law, tortious interference with contract, and so on, pile up so that security researchers are, are even more reluctant to report on this. So this is kind of like the perfect storm of terribleness, right? We yeah. have rent extraction. We have endangering the food supply through greed. We have endangering the food supply through um, malicious attacks. And we have uh, the mass silencing of the critics of these companies and their products that would allow us to know about this and for independent parties to mitigate it. You have IP, control of customers, critics, and competitors. Yeah, no, perfect. I, and that takes us very nicely and well beyond the kind of consumer criticism of tech, which is, well, it's monopolistic. These things don't work that well. It's not good for me as a consumer. This tool doesn't work and it's expensive. You know, it takes us well beyond that um, to kind of labor practices, to what, it, how it affects citizens' liberties and, and beyond. Broadening out, uh, I think a lot of this discussion already hints at the way that tech has entered a whole range of other sectors and a whole range of other sectors have basically become part of tech. So, you know, people will know that, you know, finance is tech and tech is kind of finance today. Um, but it also applies to manufacturing and to agriculture, as the kind of John Deere example shows. The cell that big tech makes, I guess, is this idea of disruption, that it's disrupting existing industries. Do you think that tech's entry into and, and tech's kind of, I guess, colonization of a whole range of industries is furthering monopoly or or how what's the dynamic there? Is well, it further or, or is it just meeting up with existing monopolies in in, in other industries? It, it Well, so there's two things going on, right? So um, capitalists hate capitalism. Capitalists all want to be um, rentiers, right? Yeah. Um, you know, capitalism and rentiers both uh, alienate workers from their labor, but capitalists do it by like mobilizing capital uh, and, and forcing workers off of uh, hereditary stable arrangements like, um, you know, uh, being serfs bound to the land uh, and then take those, those newly proletarianized workers and, and stick them to work in factories. But, you know, feudal lords, they just have peasants who are bound to the land. They, they make their money by owning things that other people need in order to be productive. Uh, whereas, um, uh, you know, rentier, uh, whereas capitalists make money by like mobilizing capital 
in in order to produce things. And and you know, capitalists and rentiers, they're they're kind of enemies. But the the dirty secret of capitalism is that every capitalist really wants to be a rentier. It's like so much yeah. easier than making things to just own things that other people who make things want. You know, Doug Rushkoff. Calls every this, bourgeois wants to be an aristocrat, basically. Yeah, yeah. Doug Rushkoff calls it going meta, right? Like, don't own don't don't own the website. Own the platform that people use to make the websites. Don't own the platform mm. that people use to make the websites. Own the patents that the platform that people use to make websites have to license. Don't own the right. patents. <laughs> own the futures on the patents. Don't own the futures on the patents. Own the derivatives of the futures of the patents. Right? Like this is the you know this is a kind of ever more rarefied uh, rentier uh, uh, environment. Where like it, it's just a bunch of what you know David Graeber, arrest in power used to call uh, bullshit jobs, right? Like you want to turn every real job into a bullshit job, um, and uh, and and so as industries become more concentrated, it becomes easier for them to be rentiers. Uh, you know, one of the things about competition, I know leftists can be kind of um, rightly skeptical of competition as a a thing that like bourgeois reify as like an engine of of uh, you know, innovation or whatever, and a, and a panacea and a substitute for uh, direct public intervention and in things like health markets and so on, uh, which shouldn't even be markets. The, the one thing that competition reliably does, actually two things. The first thing that it does is it um, disciplines firms because companies really do worry about their customers going uh, across the street to someone else. And it also introduces collective action problems for firms so that they can't capture their regulators. You know, the, the origins of the term regulatory capture are in Chicago economics, where it's just this kind of nihilist idea, come, it's something that comes out of public choice theory, that like capture is just inevitable. Every industry will eventually capture their regulators. What's, what's I think, much more true to say is that um, the, uh, the um, capture uh, is the result of a concentrated sector that can agree on their po policy priorities and has lots of money to spend to realize them. Um, that's that, that's, you know, that's the origin of capture. If you want to stop capture, you have to make them into a disorganized squabbling rabble whose margins mm -hmm. have been eroded by competition, uh, so that they, they, they can't, um, uh, capture their regulators because they can't agree. And also they don't have any money to buy them off with. And, and I think due to what, capital, what capital does to labor effectively. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And, and, you know, labor has the collective action problem. Uh, capital doesn't, and we just need to give capital that that collective action problem. We can actually see that in action. If you remember the Napster years, right when when you had the tech sector, it was like so much larger in terms of its annual turnover than the entertainment sector. But it, it was also like hundreds of squabbling little companies that couldn't even agree on where to hold their annual meeting, much less like what policy priorities they should discuss there. And the entertainment sector was like seven companies, and so they just kicked tech's ass. Because they all showed up and said the same thing in every form. They had message discipline, right? And and you know this is like you saw it in the way that the uh, changing fortunes of of Hollywood actors. You know, I, I I live in the middle of the entertainment sector as as previously noted. And back in the old days, before the um, AMPTP was founded, the 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 publisher or the the producers uh, guild. What used to happen is that all of the, the trade guilds, all the in front of the camera and behind the camera guilds would bargain as a unit with the weakest studios. So they would all show up, everyone from like the electricians to the actors would show up and say, this is the contract we're going to get this year. And the weakest studio would be forced to take it. And then they go to the next weakest studio and they'd say it again. Uh, and they would work their way up the gradient of strength and they would get these incredible bargains. 
And with the AMPTP, with, with the um, studios being empowered to bargain as a unit, they were able to do it in reverse. They go to the weakest union, which is usually my union. I'm, a, I'm an IATC member in the Animators Guild. And they get a really terrible contract out of us. And then they, they try to wring those concessions from every other union, uh, both uh, above and below the line. And, and um, you know, the, that collective action problem, it's like it's everything in terms of bargaining outcomes and distributional outcomes, right? It's why we form unions, it's to create strength. So, um, you know, we, we have the, the uh, competition as a way to neuter the unity or disrupt the unity of, of the capitalist classes. And, and we also have in it a way to force them to fight with one another, right? For, for our mm. own custom and for workers. So, I mean, I guess that generally when faced with um, monopolism, um, a whole uh, sector or the whole economy dominated by a few big guys, you can either break them up into lots of smaller guys or alternatively bring that big guy into public ownership or to socialize it in some way, give it, um, create a cooperative where it's controlled by workers, some some form of or other um, of, uh, of socializing or nationalizing it. Um, and I tend to fall into the latter camp on these questions. I think, for example, we should socialize big banks rather than seek to break them up. Um, why do you follow the kind of anti-monopolist break them up line on on tech? Well, let's say we want to socialize them. I, I, I wouldn't rule that out, although I have to say that, um, you know, so to, to give some some Brazilian politics here, if like uh, under under um, Gilberto Gil, like functionaries like uh, Sergio Amadeo had been able to create like a national IT ICT system that like took the telecentros and made them just like a uh, 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 centrally managed, you know, system of ICT for the whole country of Brazil. And then Bolsonaro had got his hands on it. That would have been bad. Right. Mm. And, and so there's, you know, in a in a state in which there are, the outcomes are contestable and we have, uh, you know, horrific um, uh, authoritarians who are plausibly going to come into uh, power and get their hands on whatever levers we install in the halls of power. Uh, that would be um, that that's one reason to, to worry about it. But even if you disagree with me and you like, OK, we should we should have uh breakup of say google um google is really good at resisting breakup uh in fact you know in general monopolies are really good at existing breakup you know one of the reasons historically that uh we had antitrust law uh in the united states and and antitrust it's it's, it's worth just revisiting why it's called antitrust because it's a very weird name for competition law and it's because capitalists hating capitalism as they do uh in the gilded age uh, industrialists in America would form trusts. So they would say like, like, just like you might have like a trust that manages your local wildlife preserve, except this trust would manage all the railway companies in America. And so the railway companies would all sell their, uh, sh their controlling stake to the trust. And then they would get shares in the trust and they would kind of meet as a star chamber and coordinate national industrial policy. Um, and the trusts were really powerful. Uh, and they were really hard to regulate. It, it, if you read um, Ida Tarbell's History of the Standard Oil Company, which was like the canonical text, and it's what led eventually to the breakup of the uh, Rockefeller empire. Tarbell was the first woman to get a science degree in America. She was a brilliant radical organizer and speaker, got involved in votes for women and racial causes. Her father had been a um, 
a Pennsylvania oil man who was ruined by the Rockefeller machine. And she took it on as her personal cause to understand how the Rockefeller empire worked and to uh, document its unfairnessness. And she syndicated this in a magazine called Collier's, very famous, well-read magazine. Mm. And her books, The History of the Standard Oil Company, Volumes 1 and 2, became the Bible for trust busters that led to the collapse of the Rockefeller empire. It's an amazing story. The books are so good. She was a a spectacular writer. Uh, And, um, you know, one of the things she's identifying in that book is how trivial it is for Rockefeller to suborn the political process. And so she documents in one case where there was a Pennsylvania state senator that was really close to enacting legislation that would have really comprehensively put the brakes on Rockefeller's shady dealings. And that guy just took a job for a Rockefeller subsidiary in San Francisco, many thousands of kilometers away, that paid, you know, 10x what he would make as a senator, and which seemed, you know, very clearly to be a bullshit job, right? Where like he basically didn't even have to show up to the office. She's just like Rockefeller's really good at this, you know. And the reason that the Sherman Act was passed in 1890, but the Rockefeller Empire wasn't broken up into the second decade of the 20th century is because Rockefeller was so good at using that monopoly power. You know, AT&T, we took 69 years to break them up because they were so powerful. Uh, IBM, we tried to break them up starting in 1970, each year for 12 years, uh, 1970 to 1982. They outspent the entire Department of Justice Antitrust Division on lawyers to fight the DOJ. Mm -hmm. So they outspent the entire US federal government on lawyers, on antitrust lawyers. And after 12 years, they got off the hook because, you know, Reagan was appointed and uh, Reagan won the election rather. And, and his appointee was like, you know, sorry about that. We, we never should have come after you. We're glad uh, that you're still around. Um, just go about your business now. You're fine. Right. Uh, and, and so if you want to uh, break up monopolies, the best thing to do is prevent them from forming because once yeah. they're formed, they, they're too big to fail and too big to jail. And if they have formed, you have to find ways to weaken them before you can break them up because the political process is just not well suited to corporate actors who have deeper pockets than the regulators themselves. Yeah. So maybe just briefly, if you can spell out some of the ways that you propose that we should do this to start weakening them before we break them up or or do something else to them. And also I wanted to ask, I mean, you know, to a certain extent, this seems like a strategy of what they call over-identification or an even more um, kind of complicated term, subversive affirmation, which is to basically take someone up on their word and lean into it. Um, so, you know, to be more capitalist than the capitalists, to say that, you know, we're capitalist true believers, we believe in competition, and therefore we need to blast away these legal supports for monopoly and rentierism, um, and then we'll see where we get. I mean, I think then the, the system would, would probably likely collapse because of the role um, that uh, intellectual property rights and the whole regime plays in contemporary capitalism. But, um, you know, maybe that's a that's a discussion maybe for another time. But, you know, if you could just spell us out what the, sure. what the initial kind of small steps first are. So so I think that um, we can look at the the phenomenon of, of, of enshittification of the, you know, the curdling of technology as arising out of three underlying uh, causes. So the, the first is um, a a general trend toward concentration that is the result of a failure to enforce antitrust law. And we are seeing a reinvigoration of that, and I'm all for it, but as noted, it's a slow process. I mean, it's it's got legs, and and you mentioned that, you know, it it creates some 
odd alliances. I think the oddest right now is there's a there's a bill pending in the United States Senate called the Senate Act or the America Act rather that has uh, a lot of co-sponsors, but it was initially co-sponsored by two senators, Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz, and it's going to mm. break up uh, Google and Facebook, right? So that's a that's a pretty wild coalition to see emerging out of uh, the U.S. Congress. Very weird. Um, but beyond that, and because technology has these additional flexibilities and capabilities, um, we have uh, other remedies that we can seek that don't require that we wait for breakups as the only step that we can take. There are these intermediate steps that we can take on the way to breakups. Um, and they come in, in sort of two packages. The first is we have to constrain the action of the tech firms. Um, so right now, they can abuse that digital flexibility to do anything that they want. They can uh, they, have, they have no real privacy rules that bind them. They have no real labor rules or fair trading rules that bind them. They, they can uh, you know twiddle the knobs as much as they want to, to change the business logic of their services. That makes it very hard for competition or labor to act on them as a check against their power. And so we need to pass these laws. We also need to force them to expose interoperability gateways, and this is already underway in the European Union with the Digital Markets Act, that allows you to leave Facebook and go to another service, maybe a worker-owned co-op, maybe a startup, maybe a, uh, a nonprofit, or maybe just something run by a hobbyist, right, but for their friends. And you can leave Facebook or Twitter or any of these other big services and continue to exchange messages and participate in communities uh, and be, be connected to the customers that matter to you that you're leaving behind when you walk away from those walled gardens. The problem with those is that they're very hard to enforce, that the tech companies have lots of ways that they can make those gateways non-functional or, or uh, intermittently functional. And it's very hard to figure out if, they're, if that's happening because the tech companies are uh, dealing with real technical issues or real issues of bad actors trying, trying to break into their services. And so they're shutting things down because they see their users' data as being stolen by another Cambridge Analytica, say, or whether it's just them trying to discourage these competitors. And they're incentivized to do so. And so it would be pretty naive to assume they wouldn't. And so on top of that, we need to restore the ability for us to take self-help measures. So we need to constrain their ability to lock us down and we need to restore our ability to unlock their services. We need to restore mm. the right to circumvent, right? Reverse engineer, to violate terms of service, to do the kinds of things that historically tech firms have done to one another with great abandon. You know, Apple exists today because they were able to reverse engineer Microsoft Office and make iWork. Otherwise, people would have all had to switch from the Mac to the PC because the Mac version of, of uh, Office was terrible. And everybody who was making, you know, text documents and PowerPoint slides and and um, spreadsheets was making them in Microsoft Office format. And so they would have been able to extinguish the Mac if, if Apple hadn't been able to reverse engineer it. Today, Apple would destroy you if you tried to reverse engineer their products the way they did Microsoft's. So we need to restore that. Um, and I have a bunch of mechanisms by which we can reform all of those laws, either singly or in packages. Um, for one thing, you know, we can... Um, look to uh, uh, the instances in which the big companies are caught cheating, uh, which they will absolutely do because they're incapable of not cheating. And we can impose on them as a remedy for cheating as part of the settlement, special masters who act as uh, supervisors, overseers, who decide when they can and can't sue competitors. And they can make the determination 
about when a lawsuit against a competitor is a pretext for extinguishing competition and when it has to do with a competitor who is engaged in uh, genuinely um, uh, antisocial conduct in relation to their users, not their shareholders, uh, things that violate their users' privacy or integrity. And the way that they would do that is by um, uh, answering the question, does this violate any of these consumer protection laws or labor laws or fair trading laws that, that we should be binding the big tech platforms with uh, already? You know, it's very weird that today the company, the, the entity that decides whether someone who is scraping Facebook is endangering Facebook's users' privacy is Facebook. Facebook right. is like permanently disqualified itself from being the custodian of its users' privacy. Uh, and, and, you know, anyone who doesn't understand that hasn't been paying attention. And what we need are objective standards that come out of democratically accountable legislatures uh, in order to make that determination about when conduct in relation to Facebook's users is or isn't good for them. All right, Corey, thank you very much. That's been brilliant. All right. It was my pleasure. Nice to chat. All right, guys, what did you think? Um, Were you convinced by his case for uh, breaking up the big tech giants about the role that interoperability, which seems, as I said, quite a technical, jargonistic little idea, but as he puts it, you know, very important, very central. Were you convinced by the way that that might open up the whole internet and make it work for us? I thought it was a great discussion. I mean, I was kind of, um, and there were so many parts of it that were fascinating, um, particularly like the thing you mentioned, Alex, and the discussion about the, I mean, this ties into so much of so many things that we've discussed on the podcast separately. And I have to confess, it never occurred to me that this would recur. I mean, it kind of in retrospect, it's obvious it would recur. But before listening to this um, discussion you had with Corey, it never would have occurred to me that this would also play out in the domain of tech and intellectual property. So the story of the, um, you know, the guy who goes to Geneva, and because he's kind of rebuffed at the domestic level in the hearings around the digital information superhighway, he um, goes to Geneva to lock in what he wants through treaty obligations imposed on the US rather than through embedding it in the um, you know process of uh, democratic, ordinary process of democratic yeah. constitutional deliberation at the national level. So, you know, one point, I suppose, not usually that I would um, give Al Gore any credit, but that would be one point where um, he deserves, you know, he deserves some credit. Anyway, that was fascinating, I thought, as well as all the stuff about um, the deliberate obsolescence as that's a way of controlling, kind of um, monopolizing the market and the rest of it. Where I didn't, you know, where I didn't follow the logic, where I felt like it was the wrong way around was his solution to the problem monopoly. So it seems to me the way kind of Corey set it up was that monopolies um, capture government and therefore monopolies are bad. Um, And so the solution is to kind of, you know, it seems like his ideal position was the one he was talking about where you had the game industry at one point where it was kind of this cacophony of all these small um, competing firms that weren't able to, um, you know, kind of impose themselves um, on national politics or a national on the national political system, and so his solution is to break up monopolies, um, and that also avoids the risk of capture by um, populist authoritarians. Giving the example of Bolsonaro in Brazil, and that seems to me to be kind of the wrong way around because 
Well, for a start, you know, like, I mean, I don't, if you set up, if you're in a position where you set up demo, democracy as the problem to be um, avoided or deflected, you're inevitably going to end up in all sorts of kind of difficult situations further down the road with accountability, lack of control, and the possibility for kind of concentrated private power to grow in unrestrained ways. So it seems to me kind of um, framing it in that way is problematic in itself. But if you break up the trusts and you break up monopolies, what you'll end up with is kind of this artificially created kind of market, um, this artificially kind of induced competition. And inevitably, the process will just get going. You know, it'll kind of be rebooted, but you'll end up in the same place. You'll end up with concentrated, enormous um centers of uh, private power, capital, finance, tech, whatever they might be with all the kind of network effects and monopolistic effects that come into play in the market eventually. And so it seems to me self-defeating. So rather than breaking up monopoly, it seems to me it would be better to find ways of capturing them in the interests of democracy and the public. Um, and, you know, like uh, that might involve nationalization or it might involve kind of seeing the Internet as a utility or something like that. But it seems to me, you know, there's also potentially many more creative ways in which monopolies could be brought under the control of um, of the public. George? Yeah, no, I think the the kind of approach of, of trying to solve the the problem of the internet at the, the macro level, if you will, so this kind of anti-monopolistic um, kind of solution, there, there is one sense in which he's definitely right, that you can't have the these kind of micro solutions, i.e., like, what what does the internet exist to do? I think the, the story about Uber and the, the pickers and the uh, and the ants, this idea that you have the two different sorts of Uber drivers, one one who very picky um, and the other who just take any fares. And the whole you know purpose of, of that app is to try and change behavior. Well, that's, you know, if that at, at the micro level is what the internet essentially is today, it's, it's not a neutral terrain, um, but it's in, in fact, you know, an attempt to, to capture information and, and change behavior ultimately, then there has to be some political response. You can't look for a kind of disaggregated or micro level response. Instead, you need a you need a, a, a political one. And I mean, I, I tend to probably to agree with Phil in terms of, you know, it's all, all comes back to good old democracy at the end of the day. And that's, you know, that's the only thing that can can uh, is, is bigger than the Internet. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not a, not an easy solution, but I think the, you know, the way that he, he kind of moved from his analysis of the internet to the solution, I would agree with, but the, the, the kind of ultimate, um, what to do about it, I probably would would tend to be less anti-monopolistic and more kind of democratic control. Well, I mean, I, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure if I read it the same way because I don't think his response is um, shies away from politics, from political reform, from legislation. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the anti-monopolism, although that is an important point, I think it's ultimately more about anti-intellectual property rights because that is what holds in place and allows for these anti-competitive practices. So it's not necessarily about breaking up Facebook. It's about allowing any producer to plug into Facebook. 
as he, you know, as he says it. And the reason why you can't do that is because of like these walled gardens that they've created. If you break down the ability of yeah. companies to have these gar- walled gardens, to break down these walls, then then you're able to plug in. And then and then you don't, you're not exactly sure how the market will function, but there are uh, legislative barriers against the creation of these monopolies again. So I don't follow Phil's argument that, you know, breaking them up will lead to the same monopolistic uh, practices once again once they join up again because um, there's two I think there's two sides to this right just to maybe make this clear I think there's one which is antitrust legislation which stops um, companies buying up competitors buying up um, all other um, producers all along the value chain and then there's the other side which is the intellectual property stuff about um, you know copyright and trademark and the way that these are all used um, to prevent um, you know competition so I think there's kind of two different things I think on the end I think let me just to round out the point on the monopoly side of things. I'm um, I'm not an anti-monopolist. I, I you know would agree with George and Phil that it should be brought under democratic you know big um, things like this, which are seen as like a utility, should be brought under democratic control. My exceptions are for third places, um, things like restaurants, bars, taverns, which I think are essential social infrastructure. And maybe there's an argument to be made that yeah, but they're no um, monopolies, are they? Uh, well, they are. They are. Yeah, they are because they're things like McDonald's. They're things like Burger King. There's things and like really monopolies there. Well, they're not. They might not be monopolies, but they're but they're oligopolies, right? And and it, the you know the street is increasingly um, in Western democracies they're not. They're do- not. dominated by dominated by massive companies, which are the only ones are able to afford no, the rent. No, they're not, man. There is no comparison between Facebook and its grip on a certain you know on kind of social or meta and google and mcdonald's you know so there just isn't well there's there's you know? there's like maybe six really massive internet companies um and i i'm not saying that they're the same as um you know starbucks and mcdonald's but the point is that there are the similar processes at work even if it's a different scale anyway my my point is that i would normally not be an anti monopolist with regard to many things in the economy though i do think that you should have independent pubs and restaurants because they're an essential social infrastructure for um effectively um you know civic intercourse democracy um and and maybe there's an argument to be made that you know the internet should be seen in a in a similar way that we should have our our own spaces um disaggregated um not centrally controlled you you want your own space you want my space a space, a safe space, well, Alex's yeah, space, Alex's space. No, look, I mean, I think you're right, you know. So, I mean, um, there's two arguments bundled up in the discussion, right? One is about rents um, and the intellectual property associated with rents. And many of the points, you know, I'd agree with many of the points that both you and Corey made in the discussion. Um, if there are ways to kind of eliminate the um, uh, the rent kind of extractivism which is imposed and the parasiticism that comes with intellectual property rights or the that kind of huge infrastructure that is associated with it now and is misleadingly labeled, as Dr. O says, you know, so much the better. I'm not sure I'd see it as, you know, kind of inducing competition, though. But nonetheless, despite that, I think his, his view of monopoly is that it is kind of... Um, Competition is the way to restrain it. Competition needs to be created, and we need to kind of impose collective action problems on on um, on capitalists. And that that is the way you know that is the solution to it. Um, and it seems to me that isn't you know that isn't the right way around. The right way around is as as we've been you know George and I have indicated would be to impose control. But that's um, impossible. Rather, 
I mean, isn't that or no, not, impossible, not impossible, but it's extremely yeah. difficult, whereas the other route of being more capitalist than the capitalist and insisting on competition might actually start to break them apart. And then you can yeah, but move it doesn't, on to the though. second stage. It, that's what I, you know, I mean, this is the kind of the falsity of neoliberalism, right? It's the promise that neoliberalism has offered for the last 30 years is the attempt to kind of induce artificial competition through what you know, in but there isn't. But, this, area, but there would be very real competition. competition. But there would be very real. I mean, there is the result. You know, though, there's a huge the amount of app isn't. producers, for example, right? Small app the producers. Result, what are app producers? Mm. App producer, app maker who well, produce app apps. Producers, app app, maker. Um, short and, for application, I believe. But the but I, doesn't this go against his his argument, which I think was very good about how you know all capitalists want to become rentiers, or I think as you they put do, it, Alex, yeah. all capitalists want to become aristocrats. It was a good point, yeah, so, for sure. And which I think was a. And I think, you know, the internet, to take it in the, the most general terms, really clearly illustrates that. You have a lot of the kind of the, the rhetoric around inventiveness and coming up with these new solutions. But actually, the more you dig into it, no, the solution is extremely secondary to whether you can build moats. I think that's what startups say and, and you know, kind of defend it, like privatize it, extract rents, like insert you know, this this bit of tech in in a normal kind of functioning um, relationship or, or process or whatever. So, I mean, I guess this is why I'm, I don't, yeah, I kind of think off the top of my head a little bit, but isn't his, I mean, it, to the extent that that kind of anti-monopoly without introducing democratic control, would, wouldn't it just then lead to that same dynamic just reasserting itself, whereby as soon as any but he wins the competition fight, as it were. No, because that's the not first allowed. Thing that's, do... that's not, there's no there's no winning the, the fight anymore. That's what that's the, what that's what this is premised on. That you have legislation which breaks up anything that starts to get too big, right? So it's not necessarily that the process would would recur. Mm. No, but that I mean, I think that's the point that it doesn't. You know, you can't. You know, you. It's irrational to constrain economies of scale at some point, right? And at some point, it becomes, you know, if you kind of tried to restart the process and reboot it, you would end up with these large kind of organizations that were restrained by legislation from getting the benefit of um, economies of scale, of larger scale, of the benefits of extra growth and investment and so on. And so, you know, inevitably it would be lifted and then you'd be back to the same problem of monopoly. But I want to go to what I said. I want to rescore, you know, underscore what I said about the... Um, We've had this for the last 30 years. I mean, that's what neoliberalism is. It's an attempt to foster, kind of artificially create markets where markets are very hard to sustain um, and to try and create competition. What you end up with is, in fact, more layers of bureaucracy and the regulatory state, right? You end up with all these independent kind of regulators that are there that are needed to enforce kind of competition. And so you end up with, um, you know, what the political economist Steve Vogel, what he called kind of freer markets, more rules. And that dynamic is the one that I think we've got to kind of, um, you know, uh, cut. That kind of Gordian knot has to be cut. And I worry that the way in which Corey phrased it, that he would end up, you know, reproducing this in his desire to kind of break up the tech monopolies and induce competition. Uh, No, absolutely. I mean, I I totally agree with your depiction. It's a point that I've made many times in the past as well about the way that neoliberalism is about creating pseudo markets and a huge amount of regulation and so on. This is different because the real, the, I mean, at least, you know, Corey's argument runs that as follows, that there is a, um, there is competition, there is genuine competition, but it gets swallowed up at every turn. So, you know, there's a bunch of app producers who aren't able to 
plug in and sell their apps on the Apple Store or um, Google Play or whatever because they need to fulfill certain requirements. And if you if the, if they could be those garden walled gardens could be broken up and anybody could plug in and sell their app on that store, you would have genuine competition. Like it's a competition which really exists. It's not a, it's not a pseudo market. It's that there is a competition struggling to break out which gets swallowed up by a monopoly so it's a little bit no, but that, that's it's, slightly it's different. different no but then no, no but this is that is kind of treating it as a yeah but i think what i guess what i'm saying is at least from what i understood from what Corey said i think he's conflating those two things so you know you could treat facebook as a high street right as a public high street so the public gets to decide through its representatives as to what kind of shops are allowed on the high street for instance and that would be like what you're saying right well, that, and, and I think that is, public, that is to the public kind of system. That is a central argument. They, that, well, that's different this from of the idea of breaking up Facebook. Yeah. So, but I'm saying there are different strands here, and there is definitely a kind of a old-fashioned kind of trust-busting thrust to his argument. I think there are other kind of strands to the argument, like you say, that are worth drawing out, like interoperability, but. With the caveat that I just don't think breaking up monopolies is um, that the benefits are ultimately lie in that direction. Okay, so um, let's move on to another question, which is um, the way that, and I think this is still kind of underexplored and underrealized, the way that so many parts of the economy have been techified that there's an intermeshing to the extent that they're not even separate, distinct areas. And I give the example of agriculture. Um, and I just wanted to throw this out there because this is from a, a dossier, which I which I translated, but I think it's very worth reading. I'll put it in the show notes, um, which is about, uh, which is actually written by the landless workers movement in, in Brazil about the role that tech is playing in agriculture. So tech giants tend to migrate to the agricultural sector with a sort of vertical integration taking place, not among companies of the same sector, but along the value chain, which shows the capacity of these companies companies to absorb and reorganize the chain vertically from the field to the consumer. And that one example of this is uh, digitalization attempts. So for example, Mark, Microsoft's working in partnership with germ plasm centers around the world to provide the infrastructure to digitalize genetic banks. And of course, they come, you know, to, to own these things. Um, there's companies like Syngenta, Bayer, BASAF uh, that have developed agricultural software and digital platforms, which are installed on mobile phones that provide agricultural producers with recommendations. Uh, today, there's tractors equipped with artificial intelligence that collect information on soil humidity, composition, and the best location and the best season of the year to plant. But of course, um, a lot of these applications are available freely to farmers in exchange for participating in massive data capture um, you know, farmers inputting their data and, and these companies being able to gather this data and then ultimately monetize it and probably lock in farmers into into these systems. So I think it's, I just raised that because I think it's it's fascinating and I something that I wasn't really familiar with, the degree to which um, these sort of monopolistic tech practices, which we're familiar just as kind of users because you have to, you know, you, you do all your search on Google, um, you're connected to people on Instagram and, and whatever, um, that it goes well beyond just that kind of, the way that we experience it often as consumers, um, that there's a whole range of producers all over the world who are wrapped in and locked into um, into these systems. Well, it, it, I mean, it seems to me like the, and this, I might be being a bit simplistic, but in that kind of scenario where you have the potential for a really technologically sophisticated approach to production, um, that isn't necessarily where you want competition. That's where you'd want some kind of coordination, yeah, uh, planning like a rational approach because 
with all of that, like, and all that kind of data capture, if you just had a single, um, you know, the state, for example, taking this this information, you could plan at the national level, presumably, and you wouldn't be pitting different producers against each other, but rather working out what what are your kind of i mean it could even be pretty sophisticated what are the most fertile bits for growing different crops and you know how do you kind of meet the requirements of of a whole nation's exporting and domestic consumption needs i mean yeah i mean i don't want to be too simplistic but it does seem like there is a there is a massive amount of potential there but it's just completely undermined by the by the introduction of competition um both between data capturers and then at the level of you know at the level of production i guess i guess production well I, we do like, experience it, it through consumption you're right alex like the internet i produce i you know i consume it we are internet consumers but do we you know do we experience it in the same way as producers no definitely not no i mean i, I think you're right the only, i would only disagree that you know it's not undermined by competition it's undermined by private ownership uh, and the intellectual property barriers that states set up and uh, allow these companies to avail themselves of um, to lock out both competitors, but also to to um, lock in um, you know users, producers, and consumers into these systems. So yeah, I agree. There's a huge amount of potential there that you know if it, it should be it should be nationalized um, rather than, you know provided as a, a kind of public platform that farmers are able to plug into, for instance, um, rather than being something that, um, you know, is, is privately owned and controlled. But one last... So what was the, what was the dossier called, um, um, the by the dos- way? And what differentiates a dossier from another do- sort of document? I'm not sure. That's just what they call it. But anyway, it's called Big Tech and the Current Challenges Facing the Class Struggle. Um, lots mm. of interesting stuff in there, I, I, I found. Um, again, I didn't, I'm not responsible for, for, for it other than having translated it. Um, one final point, which we didn't get to talk about. Um, I mean, I didn't manage to bring this up with Corey in the, in the time that we had, um, but he has a bit in his book about um, actually about free speech and about community moderation. He's very critical of um, the sort of radicalization pipeline, the idea that, you know, because people see stuff on the Internet, they become radicalized, um, that the social media brainwashes people um, or the idea that conspiracy theorizing or far right ideas are um, somewhat unconnected to the way society is unfree or unfair. Um, you know, that, that basically the internet made people go fascist or go whatever, terrorist or go pedophile or go whatever the fuck, right? Um, and I, I, one thing that I found interesting in his approach is that, um, you know, his, his arguments against centralized private control um, of these networks would also imply an end to the algorithmic moderation and instead allow, for example, if you're able to plug in your community into Facebook's platform and bring people, you know, people who are Facebook users, but plug into your um, community, which is hosted elsewhere, you can set your own moderation, you know, and, and you do your own community moderation rather than having to follow Facebook's rules, which are implemented by the algorithm. What do you guys, what do you guys think of this? So I have a I have an analogy here or something which I've been thinking about, which is in football that you have an increasing movement away from the the, the figure of authority, the referee to the technical technological process, VAR, video system referee. So this is like it's something which it, it you may end up with marginally better decisions, but the removal of authority from those decisions means that everybody 
uh, hates them. Well, I hate them, so I can generalize that to everybody. Everybody hates VAR, and it it, de- it these decisions are less legitimate. And everybody spends all their time analyzing mm-hmm. the game, talking about the decisions, not the actual content. And I guess the analogy here would be there is a case for an identified individual, the mod, the ref, whatever, making a decision, having authority, the community agreeing that this person has the, the ability to make the decision. And that legitimizes the community and it makes the play fairer. It makes the speech kind of more kind of balanced and you know there is somebody ultimately you can appeal to rather than it being automated through an algorithm which is essentially a way of you know people hiding behind the technology um and you know divesting themselves of the authority but still implementing their decision so i guess (laughs) sorry that was a very long answer but yeah i I think i can see i mean phil's like not another fucking football point. But, but no, this I was, was... going to say it actually, if it means that the delegitimization, if the end of the referee delegitimizes football, that sounds like potentially a good thing. But Yeah, yeah. It, no, I think unfortunately you're right. Like this is the problem. All of the anti-football types are just rubbing their hands together and hoping that football collapses under the weight of its own contradictions. Um, but no, I think there is something appealing in this idea of like the necessity of a community taking responsibility for itself and you know god save the mods as it were yeah i i, I totally I agree suppose, i think that well, well i don't well, know i mean i so my i have a slightly different view which is it sounds a bit to me like mastodon right which was the kind of you know the woke alternative um the left woke alternative to twitter when elon musk took over twitter x whatever the hell it's called anymore um but the idea being like that it's kind of these separated communities that have their own kind of rules about what is legitimate um, and I guess the problem there is like, I don't, I mean, I like the idea of what George is saying and I see the rationale of it. And I also, I'm entirely for the, you know, I mean, in, is, in as much as this is kind of an extension of the idea of a right to association by, um, enjoyment of that, right. You can set the rules as to who is entitled to your entire, you know, the rules under which you associate, then that makes perfect sense. However, I'm not sure how you resolve the problem of public, you know, the public speech and the public square and the public gathering then. It seems to me to kind of risk exacerbating fragmentation and privatization of conversation as well. You know, and where is Mastodon? I mean, Mastodon hasn't taken off. And I'm, I I mean, there might just be a very kind of simple and obvious technical solution to that. Um I mean, I see most recently on Twitter, for instance, they have this kind of Wikipedia style content or community notes now where a claim isn't kind of fact-checked by anonymous kind of moderators in hock to the pentagon but rather the so-called community effects where like a certain kind of threshold of users on the platform add kind of um you know add a caveat or add some kind of extra information to a particular tweet and i don't know you know the structure of how they reach it but that you know that seems to me kind of an effective way of um of kind of exercising public restraint um, without compromising, necessarily kind of compromising the principle of free speech in a public context. So I don't have a clear answer to it, but I suppose I worry that Corey's model, at least the way he laid it out, or or what you just said, Alex, is kind of the Mastodon model, and that kind of has risks of its own. Well, I mean, I'm not sure, I don't know Mastodon's a private community it's it's a it's a platform it's an open platform but it's a and number the, of the, private the, communities on the platform who right. don't interact with each other but whereas on real- twitter you do interact with each other that's the point right 
I think the it's reality like of public Reddit. speech, of all public speech, is that it is fragmented. There is, it, the, the minority of public speech is done in the, the open public square. Most of it is done in communities of different sorts. It's in a bar, a specific bar. It's in a group that you have together. It's with your group of friends and versus another group of friends. And all of these have tacit rules about what is appropriate and not. And so I don't think having that reflected on the internet is, is in any way problematic. I think that the difficult no, but you case, can't the difficult case the Mastodon is, groups, right? That's the point. Whereas anyone can listen to this podcast who wants to, right? Whereas, you know, that's different from the Mastodon groups, like they're private groups, unless you sign up to the membership rules. Right. And, but that's the case, you know, you have a conversation at a table in a restaurant, you can't just join that conversation, you know, that no, that, but you, you can know. buy any newspaper you want to, right? So, well, but, so, so the conversation in which is genuinely public in the really open public square, which is the minority of speech still, I agree is the difficult case. And maybe the internet doesn't have a, a, a true equivalent to that. I mean, that's, this is the tricky thing. It's easier maybe to solve at a community level where you have different communities moderating themselves. And I think we all agree that's a good way to go about it rather than, at least it's certainly in contrast to algorithmic moderation, this sort of impersonal uh, sovereign. But the, the where it comes to something like Twitter, which is ostensibly public, but actually isn't, it, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tricky case. And I think they're, um, well, I guess to round this out, only public democratic control of these platforms um, will um, will provide any kind of solution, and even then, there's still debates to be had about what um, what kind of speech is allowed um, and what kind of speech isn't. You know, there's still issues about spam, about abuse, about harassment, and where the lines of free speech uh, are drawn. All right, listener, we'll leave that there. We hope you've taken a lot from what you've heard. Please do subscribe at patreon.com slash bungacast. Subscribers get two paywalled episodes a month at the very least. And there's also our fantastic reading club um, where we go in depth into key readings to understand our world today. Um, that's all patreon.com slash bungacast. We hope you join us over there. And uh, regardless, please do rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Thanks for joining us. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>